Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you here. We're glad you came to worship with us this morning, and I want to welcome each and every one of you all to Union Baptist Church. Just have a quick announcement before we get into the scripture reading. Um, we need money for the meal for Crossroads, which is tonight, so if you could see Sarah White and make a generous donation toward that so that we can get some food together to take down to the women's homeless shelter there in Owensboro uh, this afternoon and minister to those ladies down there. So again, uh, that is today. Please see Sarah White and uh, make that contribution uh, for that. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn with me to Psalm 29. As we begin our call to worship this morning, we want to hear from the Lord, and He is speaking to us this morning in Psalm 29. David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Will you pray with me? Father, as we gather here this morning, we want to glorify and praise your name because you are a God who speaks. And, and this psalm reminds us over and over that you are a God with powerful speech because your voice causes many things to happen. God, as we remember just a couple of weeks ago as we started our new turn in Sunday school, it is the voice of God that spoke all that we see into existence. The deepest life forms in the Mariana Trench, God, to the the most intricate star clusters on the farthest reaches of the universe are all things that were created in those six original days of creation. And we, we glorify you, God, uh, and praise you for those things. God, we thank you for this church, and I want to thank you, God, for this the opportunity, the privilege, and the joy it is to pastor uh, this church, this, this flock of people, God. I thank you for them. I thank you for the grace that we see at work in this congregation, the, the ways that you are changing us and shaping us, God, and strengthening us and, and causing us to grow and be more mature, God. I'm grateful for the work that your word, your voice is doing in, in sanctifying your people, purifying for yourself a holy people, set apart for the worship of God. And, and we could add, in a sense, this into the things that the voice of God does because through the clear declaration of truth in teaching and preaching, God, you are changing us. You are shaping us. We are not the church we used to be. And by the grace of God, we won't be the same church a year from now and five years from now and 20 years from now. God, by your grace, you are transforming us by your powerful and glorious voice. So help us, Lord, this morning to hear the mighty voice of God. Help us through, the, through the, the gospel on display, through baptism, God. Help us through the songs that we sing. Help us through the prayers that we pray and the word that is preached to, to hear the word of God proclaimed. And then, God, through that word, teach us, heal us, sanctify us, God, by the powerful use and administration of your word. And we ask for that, O oh God, in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians that because of Christ, because of the gospel, he can be content in whatever state, whatever condition he finds himself, whether he's being abased or whether he's abounding, whether things are going well or things are going poorly. And that's the confession that we, we just sang. All we have, all we need is Christ. If we have Christ, then let us be content. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And we are grateful, Lord, that though our sins are great, your mercy is even greater. 
Lord, what a wonderful reality. What a freeing reality to know that we can fully confess, that we can fully own all the sins, all the bad things that we see in our life. We, we, can, we can make those known and, and yet we can be fully accepted because of Christ. We can be fully accepted by you. Lord, what a gracious reality to be fully known and yet fully loved. I pray this morning that every person here would know that, Lord, that we would stop trying to hide our sin, that we would stop trying to live a life of hypocrisy, making people think that we're better than we are, but that because of the gospel, we can let them know, yes, we're great sinners, and yet we're loved by you. Lord, I pray everyone that would know that. Help us this morning as we give, uh, that we would give out of those realities because we love you, because we've been forgiven, and because we desire for others to know that love and forgiveness so that ministry might continue. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, our children can be dismissed at this time. If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn back once more to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 4 this morning. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So we sing that song. You know, it's so important to understand the words that, that you're singing. Singing can, can just be a, an exercise of futility if we are singing things that we don't understand. The Apostle Paul said, I'd rather speak five words that I understand than, than uh, speak a thousand that, that there is no understanding. We ought to understand what we're singing. And do you understand what he says or what that song says when it says, two things I hear confess, my unworthiness and, and my worthiness. The, you see, the cross shows us both our unworthiness and our worthiness. What do I mean by that? It shows us our unworthiness in that Christ had to die because we're sinners. We're not worthy. We can't save ourselves. If we could save ourselves, then we wouldn't need the cross of Jesus Christ. We're, we're unworthy sinners. And yet there's a worthiness in the fact that Christ died for us. It's a worthiness that expresses his love and his care for us. And so we confess both our unworthiness and our worthiness because of the love of God in the cross. So that's the pre-sermon, okay? All right. Ephesians chapter 4. And um, let's back up actually to, to chapter 3. And let's go back to verse 14 just so we remember our context of what, where we've been. He says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This morning, we want to remember our context of where we've been just because uh, it's important to know what this text means. We have to know the argument and what Paul's been talking about. You know the way it is. Sometimes you walk into a room and there's an ongoing conversation and you have no idea what that conversation is. And so it's hard for you to know what's going on in that moment. You're hearing the words, but you're not putting it all together because you don't have the context. It's the same way in the Bible. We need to know the context. And those of you who have been here with us the last few weeks, you know that what, what Paul has been teaching us and what the Spirit has been leading us to understand 
Namely, we might just put it in th these terms, and that is this, when God saves us, it isn't just an individualistic thing. It isn't just pertaining to us as individuals, but our salvation is bigger than, than an individual thing. It's a corporate experience. It's, it involves us with other people. God's plan of salvation is corporate. It doesn't just involve me by myself. It involves a unified body of people, a collective group, and we've been seeing that. So we shouldn't focus exclusively on our salvation as an individual thing, but we ought to look at the collective aspect of our salvation as well. Do you remember what Paul has, has been teaching? Of course, we know that there is an individual element of salvation. I was estranged from God. I was a sinner. God forgave me personally of my sins and He brought me into fellowship with Him in a personal kind of way. There is that individual uh, experiential kind of thing, but there's also a corporate element of that. And that corporate element is that God has a redeemed people. Not just, not just individuals all scattered all. He has a redeemed people, a body, a group, a family, a temple, a church that he is building. And when you're saved, you are incorporated into that body, into that church, into that family. You are built into that temple for the Lord. So you remember, just running through, we've done this several times now, but in chapter 2, uh, we see in verse 12 that at one time you were separated from Christ, and you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel is the people of God. You were separated from God's people. So the problem of our sin isn't just that it separates us from God, but our, our problem is that it separates us from our fellow man as well. Not only is our relationship with the Lord broken, but our relationship with other people is broken. Verse 13 and chapter 2 says, we were far off from the people of God, but now through Christ we've been brought near. Chapter 2, verse 14 says that through the gospel, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility all around us in culture, all around us in our world. You see dividing walls of hostility in Christ. Those things have been brought down. We've been brought uh, to experience peace. Chapter 2, verse 15 says that God has made us part of one new humanity, a, a new human uh, humanity. Verse 16 says that he's reconciled us to God with other people in one body. That is one group of people. Verse 18 says that we have access to one father. In other words, we, we all have one father. That makes us family. It makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Christians oftentimes refer to one another as brother or sister. That isn't just for a term for pastors, right? That's a term really for all of us. You are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ because we have one Father. And He's the Father of you. He's the Father of me if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says that we belong to the same household. We're part of the same household, the household of God. Again, in verse 19, it says that we're fellow citizens. We're like a nation, a people of God, and we belong to the same people. We're not diverse in that way. In chapter 2, verse 20, it says that we are being built into a temple of God. It's the idea of a structure being built together, and all of us come together as the people of God to form a spiritual temple for the Lord. Then we moved into chapter 3, and we remember that in chapter 3, Paul began to, to pray but then he kind of diverted back to that theme again. He says, look, in verse number one, he says, for this reason I, Paul, and he starts to pray. And then he says, wait a minute, let me, let me make sure you got this. And he goes, remember my ministry. My ministry is to reveal this great mystery that God is saving all different groups of people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, white and black, Asian, and, and, and people from all over the continent. He's bringing us into one family. That's the mystery of God that he's unfolded. And so he says that in verse 6 of chapter 3, the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're fellow heirs, members of the same body, and we saw that that word is co-partakers. So, so your experience of the gospel isn't just you and God, it's you and God's people and God. That's what this has all been teaching. It's you 
and all of God's people, all the redeemed people, that you are now part of the same family, same body, same temple, and so on. And he's been teaching us that. We have seen then that the goal, last week we saw this, that the goal or aim of all of this really is that God would receive glory. And so we looked at verse number 21 after Paul finally prays and he's closing that prayer and it says to him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. How does God receive glory in the church? Why does God receive glory in the church? Because He's bringing people from every nation and from every tribe and from every tongue. He's bringing them together in one family and that gives Him glory. It brings glory to God for all of these people to, that were diverse and that were separated and that hated each other to be brought together as one family, Jew and Gentile, black and white as one family. You know, that really is amazing and it is an act of God and it's worthy to give Him glory for. What, what do you see when you look around at the world? When you look at the, around the world, you realize this, that sin doesn't just affect our relationship with God, it, re, it affects our relationship with our fellow man. And when you look all over the world, you see hatred for your fellow man. That's what you see. The, the history of humanity, in, in one ways, is a history of war, which is really a history of hatred. Even in our own country, with racism and things like this, it is a, a history of people finding reasons to hate other people. It's, it's, it's a history of genocide. It's a history of division. And now God is bringing people together who don't have anything in common, who, who naturally really hate each other and, and, and don't have anything that from the exterior natural kind of standpoint would, would unite them. He's bringing them together in the church as a family. And that brings Him glory. Our hearts are so full of hatred that we, we find reasons to hate other people. Whether it's politics or age or personality or the way that you dress or the way that you talk or where you're from, sometimes we don't, we don't need any reason at all, do we? There's just something about that person I don't like. We use past offenses or, or past offenses against us or just people's past. You know, it's amazing to me, even in our own community, which is not diverse, we're all the same kind of people, we're all blue-collar, middle-class white people, and yet even in our own community, people find reasons not to like each other. They find reasons to bring division, don't they? To separate ourselves from, from one another. And you see it all around us. People can use the smallest little thing. You know, well, that person said this, Oh, when was that? Last week? No, 20 years ago. And I just don't like them. And I've been telling people for 20 years about what kind of person they're like and what they did. That one little thing that they did or that one little thing that, that, that they said or just that certain way that their personality is. And now for the rest of my life, I don't like that person. If anybody ever asks me, you know, I just really don't care for him. That's that hatred in our heart. That's that, that's that drive within us to divide. And it's all over us. It's all over the world. It's in our community. It's, it's in our church. Wherever there are societies of people, there is some form of prejudice and hatred. People just make it up. It could be the how dark your skin is. You know, in America, we have racism. It's white and black, right? But in, in Africa, in some places, it's, well, some people are even darker than other people. Or, or in one case where genocide happened, there was a, a, a particular way that your nose looked that, that would define you as separate from this other people. And, and genocide was committed because of these little differences. We are full of hatred. And we find, our hearts are full of it, and we find reasons. And societies of people always find reasons to have pre prejudice and hatred. You know that you could put ten people in a room who are in every respect the same. And in very short order, you would find an us and them kind of mentality. In very short order, people would divide themselves in, into, into categories. And we're part of this group and they're part of that group. It may be something, the, the, your background, your history, your education, your standing in society. It, it will be something, but there will be that division at some point. In very short order, we all know this. All you have to do is watch Survivor, right? 
I mean, that's kind of old now. But what's that? You know, there's divisions immediately. People that start to divide each other. We don't like them. We're us and they're them, right? But it's not just survivors. It's in the workplace. It's in school. It's in our homes. It's in our families. We, we find reasons. And it's because of this, then, that when God brings diverse people together in a community rooted in love, in a, a community rooted in care for one another, and, and these people are diverse and there's nothing from a natural standpoint that's uniting them other than Jesus Christ, God gets glory in the church in that way. And so, it's because of this then, in chapter 4 now, now we have the context in chapter 4, that Paul is going to strongly urge us to live in a way that allows this unity that God has created in the gospel, he's going to urge us to live in a way that allows that unity to flourish. So don't live in ways and don't act in ways with one another that dampens that unity or that fractures that unity or disrupts that peace. Instead, live in ways, have attitudes and actions and behaviors in your life that is going to cultivate that unity and build that unity up. And so that's what he's saying. I therefore, in verse number one of chapter four, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain that unity of Spirit. Now, we're making a transition in the book of Ephesians, and I need to run through this quickly. But we're transitioning in the book of Ephesians. It's really divided into two parts. The first part is this is what God has done for you. Verse chapters 1 through 3. This is what God has done for you. Not what you have done. Not what you're commanded to do. This is the gospel. What God has done already for you. Now chapters three, 4, 5, and 6. The last three chapters are now this is how you ought to live. It's a difference between the indicative and the imperative. And some of you are like, oh, wait, I didn't know we were having an English lesson today. But we know the difference between indicative statements and imperative statements. Indicative statements are just statements of reality. The, the carpet is, is brown. There are a lot of people here. Those are statements of reality. I'm not telling anybody to do anything. I'm not commanding anything to happen. I'm just making statements of, of reality. Okay? That's chapters 1 through 3. This is what God has done for you. Uh, when you believed, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not commanding you to do anything. It's just a statement of reality. You were dead, and now through the gospel, God's made you alive. Chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right? So that's just a statement of reality. That's what God has done. He saved you by grace through faith. Or chapter 2, verse 13, now in Jesus Christ, those who have been far off have been brought near. Those are all indicative statements. They're statements of reality, just like the carpet is brown or there are a lot of people in here. It's just a statement about the way things are. It's a statement about what God has done. But now we're going to get into imperative statements. Imperative statements are, Mike, I need you to go out there. Mike, go outside this room, right? That would be a command. And I would never do that in reality because nobody tells Mike what to do. No, I'm just joking. Uh, we, 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 th those, are, <laughs> those are imperative statements. When you tell your children, go to bed, brush your teeth, get up. Those are imperative statements. I'm commanding you, I'm telling you what to do. And now we are in this, this imperative section. Verse, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all imperatives. The, the imperative is used 41 times in the book of Ephesians. Guess how many times it's used in chapters 1 through 3? One time. And now 4, 5, and 6, the imperative is used 40 times. And so we see the imperative here. I therefore, a prisoner, I urge you, I'm commanding you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That is a command. It's one of the first ones in the book of Ephesians. And that's what's going on here. Now, Paul is going to urge us to, to certain behaviors in, in these next few chapters. And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to unpack, unpack all of those things that we're commanded to do. 
He talks five different times. He talks about our walk. In this passage, he says, I, I urge you, I command you to walk in a manner that's worthy. What is our walk? Our walk is our lifestyle. It's how we live our life. And so he's telling us, he's telling us here, he's commanding us, this is how you ought to live your life. It's a command. And he uses that word walk five different times in these remaining chapters. The rest of the book of Ephesians is going to focus on our behavior. He's going to tell us not to walk as unbelievers do. He's going to tell us to put off our old selves, to put away falsehood, to put away sin and, and, and anger, not to steal, to labor honestly. He's going to tell us to get rid of bitterness out of our lives. He's going to tell us that sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among the church. He's going to tell us to use the make the best use of our time. He's going to tell us to submit to one another. He's going to tell husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. He's going to tell children to obey their parents. He's going to tell fathers to bring their children up in the way of the Lord. He's going to tell us all to, who work under authority to, to work diligently. He's going to tell all believers to do everything that they can to stand again against the schemes of Satan. He's going to give us all of these commands but He's going to give us a com these commands not as means to earn our salvation. And this is what I'm driving at. He's not giving us these things as means to earn our salvation, but because we already are saved. You see, that's the distinction we're making here. Chapters 1-3 through three says, look, God has saved you by His grace. It's all of grace, for by grace you have been saved. You were dead, God made you alive, you were separated from the promises and the people of God, and God brought you in. That's all that, all that God has done. Our salvation is a work that God has done for us, not what we do. But now, because God has done these things for you, because He's made you alive, because He's saved you by grace, because He's redeemed you, because He's made you part of His people and, and given you all these promises, now because He's done these things, now you should live in response to that. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling that you've been given. You've been called by God. You've been saved by God. Walk in a way that is worthy to that. So salvation is what God does for us, not what we do to save ourselves. So don't look at these commands that we're going to talk about in the upcoming week and think, well, I'll do these and then I'll be saved. No, salvation is what God does for you. You receive it by faith and then you respond with a life of obedience. There are two different ways that you can try to obey God. One is for your salvation. One is for your salvation. And the other is because of your salvation. And if you truly know the gospel, then your motivation will be because of your salvation, not for your salvation. We don't obey God so that God will save us. We obey God because he has already saved us. And we're so overwhelmed that God would save a miserable sinner like me. My sins are many, but his mercy is more. God would save somebody like me. So I have to give him my life. I have to live for him because of what he's done for me, this walk or behavior that he's urging is a response to our calling. Paul is saying here in the, these words to walk in a manner worthy. He's saying that you simply ought to walk in a way that equals the gospel. That word worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's a word that literally it would be used of scales. Okay, you put so much on this scale over here and you got to equal it out. You got to balance it out. Okay, so we want to put the gospel over here. This is what God has done for us. Boom. And we ought to try to live in a way that equals what God has done for us. Now, we're never able to fully do that, are we? But that ought to be what we're striving after. We ought to live in a way that equals that out, a way that balances that out, a way that brings some equality to that. Walk in a way that is equal to what God has done for you. And so, this is what we are called to. Paul is saying here that your life should be equal to the realities of what God has done for you. Now, let's get into the particulars here. We've talked about the reasoning behind our behavior, the motivation for our behavior. It's because of the gospel. But now we want to see that the specifics of what kind of behavior he's urging. And 
The kind of behavior he is urging here is behavior that will allow our unity as a church, as the people of God, as the family of God, as the temple of God, as the body of Christ. It, it is a behavior that will allow that unity to flourish. That's what he's getting at. Verse 3, I think, seems to be a, a, a sort of summing up or a summary statement of the kind of behavior that he's talking about. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So just stepping back again, we need to remember that the kind of behavior he's urging is directly related to the realities he's been talking about. Hey, God's made you one people. He's brought you together as one family, one body. Now, because of what God has done for you, live in a way that cultivates that unity, that allows that unity to grow and to flourish. Don't live in ways, don't behave in ways, don't act in ways, don't speak in ways that brings division and distorts that unity and breaks apart that peace. Don't do that. Live in a way that allows this unity to flourish. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's what he's calling us to. Now, just think about this. Think about this. It's sort of an application point here. If God, listen, if God is at work, this is, Paul said this is the mysterious plan of God that has been hidden in ages past, but now has been revealed. The mysterious plan of God is this, that God is bringing a people together. What's God doing right now? We talked about that. God's main concern is not who's in the White House or who's in Korea, right? We talked about that. That's not what God's big plan is. God's big plan is bringing a united, a redeemed people together. So if that's what God is doing, what do you think God thinks about it when we bring division into the church, when, when we fight and when we break the peace and when we gossip and when we act ugly toward one another? When, when we do that, we are tearing down what God is building up. God is building His church. He's bringing His church into a unified body. And when we act in ways that bring division, we're tearing that down. We're breaking it apart. We're tearing down what God is building up. And the sad reality is that far too many churches and far too many Christians are not known for unity and peace, but for fighting and meanness. They're known for how ugly they can be in business meetings and how, how much they can gossip and how much they can divide and how many church splits in our own community, not just our church, but the churches in our community. How often have groups of people divided and separated from the church and gone out, gone to another church, gone to start their own church. This, this is the kind of thing that unfortunately churches have been known for and, and I can't help but think we're in direct opposition to what God is doing. He's trying to unify a people. He's trying to bring people together in one body and we're breaking it apart. We need to be careful that we're not tearing down what God is building up. Now notice here, unity isn't something we can create, but it is something that we must ma maintain. He says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager, look at this, eager to maintain. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see, it's the Spirit that creates the unity. If the Spirit of God is living within me, I'm a believer and the Spirit of God is within me. And if God's Spirit is within you, and you're walking in the Spirit, and I'm walking in the Spirit, do you think there's going to be division there? Do you think there's going to be discord? Do you think there's going to be disunity? No, if we're both walking in the Spirit of God and He's leading us in our lives, He's going to be bringing us together. He's going to be uniting us. So you can always know this. When there's division in the church, there's sin somewhere. There is someone, and maybe multiple people, maybe multiple groups, who are not walking in the Spirit. The Spirit unites us. He brings, it, brings us together. It is a, a unity that He creates, but notice it is a, a, a unity that we must maintain. He says maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now He says here to, to maintain it. This idea is the idea of keep or watch, kind of to stand guard. To, to do something with care. You're, you're, you're careful. You're watching it. You're guarding it to make sure that it happens. So church, this is us. This is all of us. We ought to be eager to maintain, to guard unity. Are we like that? 
Do, do you guard unity in the church? Do you guard unity in the family of Christ, in the body of Christ? Or are we those who are kind of complicit in allowing this unity to happen? Are we those who spread those gossip, spread that gossip one more time? that talks about that person, are our actions, do they demonstrate that we are guarding unity, that we're careful to make sure we want to be unified? We don't want, we don't want division. We want peace. We want unity in the body of Christ. And so we're going to guard that. We're going to be careful not to spread gossip, not to act meanly or harshly toward one another. We are to guard it. But notice he doesn't just say guard it with care, but he says we are to be eager. Or if you have the King James, endeavor. This idea is, this word has the idea of, of haste. Do something with eagerness, with zeal, with, with strength. Like this, you need to be really, really careful to guard the unity is what Paul is saying here. We ought to be eager to do that. And notice Paul urges us to do it. He, he's commanding us. This word is, is, is kind of stronger than just an urge, like he's pleading with us to do something. He's commanding it. I'm commanding you. I'm urging you to, to be zealous, to, with haste, with strength, to guard the unity that's in the church. Is that your mindset in the church? Is that your mindset as it comes to other believers? Are you careful and zealous to guard unity? Or are your actions and behaviors more a cause of division? We need to be vigilant in guarding this unity. Paul warns elsewhere not to quench the spirit. It's the spirit of unity. And when we act in ways that bring division, we are quenching the spirit. Jesus said, you remember in the Gospels, uh, that if you are at the temple and offering your sacrifice and you remember that somebody has something against you or you have something against them, don't even offer that sacrifice. Leave your sacrifice there. Leave your act of worship there and go be reconciled to your brother first. That's the kind of zeal that we, we need in the church to, to guard that unity. Someone has offended you. Someone has hurt you. What do you need to do? Follow Matthew 18. Go to that brother and say, you know, I was offended when you said that. I was hurt when, when you know, you didn't consider me, when you didn't think, think about me. You need to be zealous to bring resolution to any of those issues. So someone brings to you and say, did you hear what so-and-so said or what so-and-so did? You need to let that gossip in right there. You know, I don't really think I need to hear that. I don't think I need to be involved. I don't want to offend you. I'm not trying to accuse you of anything, but I don't need to be part of this. We need to put gossip to the end, to an end. We need to make sure that we're reconciled anytime there's any, any division in the church because we need to be zealous to guard the unity of the Spirit. It's incumbent upon us then not to disrupt uh, the unity. Notice he says uh, to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. We all know what a bond is, don't we? A bond can be something, a literal bond. It can be like a chain that you're bound to something. But there's also sort of metaphorical bonds like the bond between a parent and a child. There's something that connects us. There's something that ties us together. And so, so it is with peace. Peace is what allows, it's the environment that allows unity. When there's peace, there can be unity. There's unity in the bond of peace. Peace is what draws us together. And so when we interject things into the life of the church, into our family even, into our family or into the church family that disrupt that peace, and we do that in a way that's unnecessary, uh, that is causing division. That's, that's an environment in which unity is not going to thrive. And listen, there, there are some people that, you know, we could maybe have uh, spiritual police and start giving out tickets for uh, disrupting the peace, you know. Uh, but, but there are some people that seem to thrive on having problems in the church. There are people that are that way in families. There are friends that are that way. There are people that are that way in, in the workplace. But what we're focusing on right now is, is the church. There are people who seem to thrive on making sure there's some disruption. Things are not at peace. Things are not smooth and even keeled. There's some problem. If there's not a problem, they're going to create a problem, right? We need to be careful that we're not those kind of people. We don't need to be those who are disrupting the peace. Our unity will flourish when there's peace. Let me say this very quickly. There are times 
There are issues that need to be addressed and dealt with. And sometimes that disrupts the peace. But we need to be sure that these are biblical, good reasons, things that really need to be addressed and not just my personal preference or the fact that I was a little bit offended or the fact that I wish we'd do this and not that. Right? We need to be careful not to disrupt the peace. So how do we do that? In the last few minutes that we have here, I think Paul is saying there are certain attitudes, certain behaviors, certain attitudes of the heart that will cause unity to flourish. So the command is, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, how do we do that? Paul gives us several mindsets or, or heart attitudes that lead to that. The first is humility or humility of mind. You see that, don't you? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. Not just with humility, but with all humility. In every situation, all the time, we ought to have humility. This word really is, again, if you have the King James, I think it's lowliness. It's just lowering yourself down. It's, it's having one, one person, an older preacher, which I think uh, he's using this word in maybe a slightly different way than we might use it, but he says it means having a poor opinion of yourself. It's the opposite of the man of the world that says, trust in yourself, believe in yourself, be aggressive, be self-assertive, have greater self-esteem. That's what the world will tell you, isn't it? Build yourself up. Have better self-esteem. Have, have more of an opinion of yourself. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says the problem is we think too much of ourselves and we need to lower ourselves down. We need to humble ourselves. We need to have a lowly mind a mindset about ourselves. We need to be lowly-minded. You know, the problem is you stop and think about why is there division in the church? Or you could apply this anyway. Why is there division in the family? Why is there division at work? It could apply anywhere. But again, we're focusing on the church. Why is there division? The answer is simply this. There are too many people who have an inflated opinion about themselves. There are too many people that think the church is about them. There, there are too many people who aren't concerned with the glory of God. They're concerned with their own glory. They're concerned with their own preferences. They're concerned with their own way. And it's because of that that they, they will be willing to disrupt that peace. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted. That's not the direction I think we should go. That isn't the decision I think we should make. Well, who are you? Who, who am I? Christ is Lord of the church. We ought to lower ourselves down. You know, maybe I've got a different opinion, but... I'm just one person and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with whatever everybody else says. That's the lowly mindedness that we need to have. When I have an inflated opinion about myself, I believe the world revolves around me. I think what happens in the church should be up to me. I think all the decisions that are made should meet with my approval. I think it's all about me. And I think most of us would recoil at that kind of, man, I don't feel that way, but isn't that really the heart motivation that's going on? when we're willing to disrupt the peace, I'm more important than this. What I think should really have a little more sway in this place. Don't they know how much I give? Don't they know how much I serve? Don't they know that I've been a member of this church that many years? Don't they know these things about who I am? You see the inflated opinion. And if we want unity, we've got to be thinking, you know what, I'm not that important. I'm just one part here. And it's through that that we have Unity. Let me show you something even uglier. It's not just that we think we're more important than other people, but again, we think we're more important than God when we disrupt the unity, when we break peace so that we can have our way in the church or in the family. When we do that, we're actually putting our will and our desire above the desire of the Lord. How do I know that? Well, it's because God's plan, the work that He's doing is uniting people. He's bringing people together. He's, he's taking people who are diverse and different and who have hatred, and He's bringing them together in a unified body. That's His goal. What's, the, what's Christ done? Christ died for our peace, chapter 2 says. He died so that we could be at peace with God and at peace with others. What's the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is at work bringing unity. It is the unity of the Spirit. So this is God's plan. This is the work that Christ died to accomplish. And this is what the Spirit is working presently within us to bring about is this unified body. And now I didn't get my way. And so I'm going to disrupt this peace. 
I'm going to call so-and-so and get them stirred up, and then I'm going to talk to this person, and I'm going to complain to the pastor, and I'm going to talk to the deacons, because what I want is really more important than what others want or what God Himself wants, with, which is unity in the church. God is working to bring glory to Himself by unifying us, and when we are, when we are fighting against that, uh, we are fighting against the plan of God. Now that isn't to say, let me just give the caveat, that isn't to say that you should never express an opinion. That isn't to say that you have no say-so, that you shouldn't tell people uh, if you think that we need to do this or that. It is just simply to say that at the end of the day, after decisions are made and things have happened, we have to have this lowliness of mind that says, I'm more concerned. Listen, I am more concerned that God would receive glory by Union Baptist Church being unified than I am about me getting my own way. And that's where we need to be. This is what Jesus taught. He says, the greatest among you will be the servant. Do you have the servant mentality, the servant mindset? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself, whoever has this lowly mind, will be exalted. Peter says, to clothe yourselves. It's the idea of putting on an apron. Put on the apron of humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. No doubt he was thinking about Christ in John where, where, where Christ, at right before his crucifixion, uh, puts on a towel. He girds himself and he washes the feet of the disciples. And Peter says that's what you need to do. You need to clothe yourself with humility. Lower your opinion of yourself and think more about others than you think about yourselves. Remember, Paul gives an example of this in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, I who am least of all the saints. That's what Paul's doing. He's having that, that lowly mindset about himself. Paul's saying, look, you're here this morning. You're a saint of God. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm lower than you. That's the mindset that we ought to have. Do you have that mindset about other believers? I'm lower than them. What they want, their concerns is more important than what what I want. Lower yourselves. Paul says in Philippians, count others as more important than yourself. Do you truly do that? Count others as more important than yourself. If you do that, we, we will have unity. If you have a church full of people who, who are more concerned about others, who count others as more important than, than themselves, there, there will likely be very few divisions in that kind of church. These other commands here. These other attitudes follow out of that humility. The next one is gentleness or meekness as it's translated sometimes. It's an inner mildness. One person said gentleness. It's a readiness to suffer wrong, committing it all to God. This is a person who's meek, a person who's gentle, is a, a person who isn't going around crushing everybody else so that they can get their way. Well, I want my way, so I'm going to tell that person what I think. I'm going to give that pastor a piece of my mind. I'm going to make sure in that business meeting that my voice is heard. A meek person isn't a person that, do that, that does that. Uh, Jesus was a meek person. We are to be meek people. It's a person who doesn't, uh, who doesn't crush others to get their way. They're not hateful and mean and offensive and rude to others just so that they can have their way. You see how that flows out of humility because if I lower my opinion of myself, then I'm not going to act in that way toward others. But then he also says to be patient or the word long-suffering means to be slow to anger. And so many of us, that anger wells up within us and we don't have, we have a short fuse. We don't have a split second and it just blows up. Boom. I'm just going to tell them what I think. Right? That's that anger coming out. And he's saying, no, be patient. Be long-suffering. Hold that anger down. Don't give way to that passion. Don't give way to those feelings. I know that right now you're feeling like you really ought to tell that person or you ought to talk to them, talk about them to other people, but hold those actions in. Restrain those passions. Suffer long. Be patient. And then he says, Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. This is the idea of bearing under weight, right? And so, so there's a situation or, and you're just bearing under it. You're not giving way to it. You hold yourself up against something. And there are some people in their actions that you just have to be forbearing. They, they irritate you. They're, they're wrong. And we're not saying that they're not wrong. But there's just that situation you just have to forbear it. 
In some, in some respects, the way that we act toward children sometimes is, is what this word means. You forbear with your children, right? You have little infants and toddlers. You forbear with them, right? You make excuses. Well, they don't understand, right? They're, they're young. They're little. They haven't learned yet. And so you make excuses. That their behavior's bad, but I know that this just they need to be taught and you forbear with them. It doesn't mean that you don't address the issues, but you don't get angry and, and, and blow up about a, a young toddler who isn't doing what you want them to do, right? You forbear with them. That's what we need to do with one another. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You make every excuse for them. And notice he doesn't just say forbear, but he says forbear with one another in love. So it's maintaining this attitude, not, not of, oh, I can't believe that person and the eye rolls and the disdain and the anger that's welling up, but I'm not going to say anything because I'm trying to be a Christian, right? No, forbear, but forbear in love. Forbear with an attitude of love toward that person and concern for them. You see, these are the kinds of attitudes and actions and behaviors that will allow that unity to flourish. Listen, as we close this morning, if God receives glory through His church being unified, then we ought to make every effort to guard that unity. This isn't about you. The church is God's church. It isn't about me either. The church is God's church, and He has designed it to bring Him glory and we ought not to make it about us then. We ought to be a people of humility. We ought to be a people of gentleness and patience and forbearance. And let us do all of this that God would receive glory in His church. We ought to walk worthy of this calling to bring God glory. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would receive glory in our church. We pray for all of us that you would help root out that sin in our life. Lord, as I studied and thought about this this week, I couldn't help but be convicted myself of the ways in which I have not been zealous and made haste to guard the unity of the church. Lord, it's, it's too easy to allow anger and division to stir up in our heart and then to begin to share that and spread it with others. I want to confess that to you this morning. I want to ask you, Lord, that you would forgive me. Give me greater patience and gentleness. Help me to forbear. Help others to forbear with, with me and with one another. God, we desire for you to be glorified in Union Baptist Church. And that's what we're praying this morning. In Christ's name we ask.